Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 67 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. In a dark night, with anxious love inflamed, oh, happy lot. Forth, unobserved I went, my house now being at rest. In darkness and in safety, by the secret ladder, disguised, oh, happy lot. In darkness and concealment, my house being now at rest. In that happy night, in secret, seen of none, seeing not myself, without other light or guide, save that which in my heart was burning. That light guided me, more surely than the noonday sun, to the place where he was waiting for me, whom I knew well, and where none appeared. O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that hast united the lover with his beloved, and changed her into her love. On my flowery bosom kept whole for him alone. There he reposed and slept, and I cherished him, and the waving of the cedars fanned him, as his hair floated in the breeze that from the turret blew. He struck me on the neck with his gentle hand, and all sensation left me. I continued, in oblivion, lost. My head was resting on my love, lost to all things and myself, and amid the lilies forgotten threw all my cares away. The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross, translated by David Lewis, London, 1908. Here's my conversation with Jeff Depatie. Maybe we start with post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, maybe go with a couple terms that are a little more commonly known now. I mean, thankfully, it was a great place for us to start becoming aware of that and then get into post-traumatic growth. But maybe you can give me your take on the difference between post-traumatic stress and actually people being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. We'll start with what's a little bit more commonly known, which is post-traumatic stress is the stress, obviously, that you feel after a traumatic event when the energy of the environment, the world around you, uh, sometimes that can be internal, but usually it's an external stimulus that pressures you out of your normative psychometrics. And in kind of like a technical term, it doesn't really become a stress disorder until about 30 days later. If you are still, your autonomic system is still activated, you're still feeling these symptoms, you haven't resolved them or dissolved them, meaning you haven't moved through it, you haven't incorporated these new potential values and whatnot, around the 30-day mark is where they start moving it into a stress disorder. Now, as you can imagine, continue to grow from there. And really, this is just kind of like a scientific starting point, if you want to call it that, from a, a reductionist view, because the truth of stress and stress disorders starts much, much earlier. It starts, it's wound in our DNA, that story. It begins before we are even conceived. Once we're conceived, our epigenetics, the control elements that work on our DNA, start to shift how we are going to respond to stressors just by the existence of how mom is giving us feedback cues and then our childhood and so on. So to put like a line where it's like before this line, you didn't have a stress disorder or stress. And then after you do have a post-traumatic stress and then to say post-traumatic stress disorder is a little bit wavy where it becomes to me a disorder. And this is why I open up the timeline like this is to me, it's a disorder whenever you are not fully able to represent who you are, your deepest level of your psyche, your soul, whatever that expression is, like your fullest version of you 
in its healthiest, most loving form, when that is unable to be expressed, to me, it's part of the stress disorder spectrum where most people really start to call it a stress disorder is when it becomes a problem, right? Where relationships start to degrade in very unhealthy ways, where you constrict inwards, your fear-based neuronal and hormonal patterns and nervous systems, all the cues go up and you stay locked down. Work starts to suffer, all these kinds of things. That's, that's Those are kind of like to get the conversation going, Scott. Yeah, I think the very common thought in the first responder community, and I won't speak for the military, but I can only make an assumption, like you've already framed there, that they think people come in as a blank slate, and then the job experiences cause the post-traumatic stress disorder, where I've always tried to push the awareness that recruits don't come in as blank slates. They come in with whatever psychological state they're already in, and then the job can build on top of that and exacerbate it, and especially if you haven't dealt with things prior. So it's great to have people come to an awareness before they come to the job and then maybe even get baseline testing to see where they're at in that moment, clear up what they can, and then be in a better place to be able to manage whatever stress is going to come from the job itself. Yeah. As society learns more and more how much we actually have to mine our suffering, as uh, Richard Rudd says it in our doc, how much gold is there? That's that's the thing, right? So you mentioned like a baseline coming in. Well, the, the real secret would be long before that, learning what that individual's non-coping mechanisms are, because we all have non-coping mechanisms. It's part of our karmic cycle to work these things out. It's, I think, our evolutionary role as humans. And for groups like the first responders in the military, once they realize that if we begin those processes early, they will only make for better policemen, policewomen, servicemen, and servicewomen stronger, more importantly, much more intelligent because their minds begin to work in different ways. When you start to sort out coping mechanisms, non-coping mechanisms specifically, you start to remove implicit biases. Those are all the shortcuts your mind runs, right? So as a, an active duty man you're, or woman or person, I suppose, I'm so terrible with politically correct. I love everyone equally. You're in the heat of the moment. You have certain options that are drilled into you while you also have how mom and dad treated you as a kid that you bring to that job, to that site, and it may not be the best tool for you there. And then more importantly, where it really starts to come in is on the other side, where now you maybe layered on new layers to these traumatic patterns. Just for like the listener, trauma is a big word, right? It has a lot of connotation, a lot of semantics to it, but just think about it as that energetic distortion in your nervous system for now. Like as that's how I'm kind of just colloquially referring to it right now. It's nice to see the the term regulation and dysregulation being used. That's a great way to frame it, I believe, as well. It is much better, right? The thing is, though, is lots of people return to their old normative scale of regulation, and it's still a subpar regulation. It's still in a non-coping state. So it's like, yeah, okay, where I was, yeah, I'm back to regulated. I'm, I'm, I've maintained that. So like throughout what we've been working on, and it's kind of becoming more and more accepted as just a simple X, Y axis graph is you have your normative line, which in the abstract reality of mankind doesn't really exist, but like for conversation, then you have an event and that event drops your, puts you into overwhelm and moves you into a insecure state, moving you closer to dysregulation and you either stay non-coping and eventually you hit the worst of rock bottom, physical death. You can bounce back a little bit, a little bit higher layer, or you come back to maintenance where you stay on that level or you grow past it. And I think that's really the important part of the conversation that we are not having 
is once you grow past that baseline, that is the human gift. That is why that is the the biggest value we can pull from our suffering because that's that's what we want to do, right? Like, why did I experience this awfulness? Uh, I'll, I'll give an example from a show. I was watching the movie Heat the other day. Oh, um, great movie! It, it's such a classic. I, I viewing it now with my lens, I'm like, man, Al Pacino really they really nail it. But he talks about that awful example of the baby being put in the microwave. Okay. How do you gather any kind of value or meaning from that, right? The thing is, is sometimes the value is about moving society forward so we avoid those things, right? Like that's what I think a good police officer, policewoman attempts to do in the first place. But now he's taken that incident. He's probably had to write reports up on it. He may even had to defend himself on trial. And now it's like burnt into his neural anatomy. And now he's taken it with him with the wife and kids. So it can be difficult, but that is... The point that's the hero's journey man that's why we plunge our hands into the muck and it is it's overdue for the resources and tools that we need because people know about them professionals know about them like it's just a matter of getting some money and the right services for people to transition so we can grow past those baselines our society loves stories of adversity and how protagonists are transformed through facing and persevering through it every one of those stories is one of post-traumatic growth in truth, right? These are the movies and TV shows that we love. So we're drawn to them. We're inspired by them. What's ironic to me is that society celebrates and envies those that are most comfortable in life. So comfort and ease is equated with success. What I think this leads to is people are facing a lot of adversity with no choice, especially over long periods of time, being labeled as and feeling like failures. And it makes it even more challenging for them to overcome and grow from it. I love it. Like how you said that about story. Story is always about risk and reward, right? And usually they go hand in hand where you dare greatly or risk greatly is where those rewards are. That's, I think, one of the things that especially young men chase when they look at military or service style careers, right? Is looking for that real glory of, I will risk myself for a reward, usually with the mind of service, which means for the greater good in some way. I really do believe that. You know, there are some people who are a little bit more wing nuts, a little bit more selfish about a little bit. Some people end up there out of circumstance, but I think that is at the heart of service. It's interesting you say that. I, I just started uh, rereading Dante's Inferno. And if we take a page out of Dante's Inferno, it starts like he's in this dark woods and he's being chased, hunted by his own desires. Okay. These things that we think we want to pursue. And what's interesting is, is in order to transmute those and grow beyond them he has to actually go through hell so it's like he's in this place that's not so good and then he has to go through hell but that is the greatest of human stories it's it's the one cyclical pattern that is everywhere we look like you said post-traumatic growth overlays really well with joseph campbell's hero's journey if you look at almost any story the nuts and bolts of it are in essence it's actually a universal truth it's how the construct of the physical reality of the universe we sit on is built. Things smash together. They grow into more complex organisms. They keep adapting to this complexity. And eventually, if you follow the organizational structure, you reach humans and human society. And we are that expression now. It's like, I like to say Prometheus gave us the torch and that is the torch we have to carry. I always say like, it's it's great guys like yourself who are helping spread this I don't want to like call it gospel because a lot of people will automatically put that with some kind of Christian connotation. Awareness, that's, maybe? That's it. <laughs> we'll call it awareness because people don't like to adapt. It is awareness. It is gospel. It is a message. It is part of the the message that we've been trying to uh, get out there. Um, 
But how is it that we are immersed in these stories and love them so much and are drawn to them, want to see them again and again and again, yet people are so reluctant to venture into or engage in their own story, their own adversity to... They see the path, right? They see it over and over and over again, what the journey is, what the path is. I don't think people are not aware of what the journey is. But why are people reluctant to engage in it then if they know what's on the other side? Like anything beautiful, it's, it's a complex web. I think first and foremost, through evolution of our consciousness, our awareness, we've become more and more aware. We're able to handle the environment in deeper ways. We are still supporting old psychological pillars meaning old psychological systems. And those old systems keep us in a more locked down state. Some of them are great and some of them keep our consciousness from being able to push out of the box. Okay. So that's one layer. And this isn't a finger waggle. Everybody knows where systems are broken right now. So that's the first thing that starts to reinforce people's constriction. So people are locked down, especially right now, post COVID. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize the psychological damage that has really actually had on society. It has had some really amazing impacts too. We've seen people rising to the occasion. So they're locked down and we're kind of got this coddled society right now where we think we are actually doing the best. And, you know, I'm not going to generalize every single country on the planet because everyone's dealing with things a little bit differently, but we have this, this softer society and we've convinced them that they don't have a moral responsibility to go out in this adventure and expand themselves, to grow, to become more than what they are. And the thing that goes with that, because some people, lots of people, I think, maybe everybody, I don't know, has that moment where they they watch something inspirational, like, I'm inspired to do more, and then they get collapsed back down. Straighten out your spine, take a deep breath, start where you are, do what you can, use what you got, repeat. And slowly you build that momentum. It's just like entropy in space. And the secret is this. Most people don't really know how strong they are. We're human beings. We're the apex right now in the universe as far as we know. I hope not. I hope there's aliens that are far smarter. (laughs) But whether you're a creationist or not, we're at least thousands of years old, probably millions of years of the universe evolving to get us here. And we are strong and capable and intelligent. I think just right now with so much overwhelm from everywhere, news, Instagram, and I'm not hacking Instagram, but like everywhere you look, you're inadequate. You're not complete. You're not enough. You're you're all these things. And it's like, well, I'll never be the fastest swimmer. I'll never be the best. At, uh, like, so you get collapsed down more and more and more and more and more and more. The secret is, is looking into you, figuring out those patterns of inadequacy where, and, and they show up like this usually where you're distracting yourself, where you are removing your attention from facing those things, that's a good place to start. Start removing those from your life. They will pull you away from being your full expression. The reason that's important, the number one dying, like research dying regret is people say they didn't have the courage to be themselves. That's the number one recorded. I don't want to die and say I didn't have the courage to do that, but I did mention the dark dark night of our soul. That's, That's the essence behind it is it's very difficult in this day and age where nobody cares what you're doing. Nobody, you know, like, and it's like, if we start pulling ourselves out together, it makes this way less daunting. We got to really get this thing to get that, that fusion flying and start this, this process. It's nice that it's happening. It's, you can see the little sparks of it. I think that's one of the things that's happening on the deeper fields of the human experience right now is people are feeling that they're feeling this shift, this, this vibration that's starting to happen. And 
I think it's going to be a, an evolutionary leap. Personally, it's nothing even mystical. It's just our ability to fully use our minds. Like, I mean, left, right brain, fully compute the linear with the abstract and put those over top of each other. Almost all the time, it's something to do with fear. People are compressed down, their brains go limbic and they go into autopilot and then they're on the treadmill and then they're on the treadmill. And then 10 years later, they're like, oh my God, I've been burning these crystalline patterns into my brain for 10 years. Yeah, it's daunting, but here's the deal. You can do it. Everybody can do it. It's truly an era of a message of hope. Yeah, and you don't recognize, like you said, the strength that you have within you until you can make the effort, even a small effort, to have one small win and then celebrate that win, recognize that you were strong enough, wrong about not being able to overcome it, and then build that momentum off of that. Yeah, that's a great term if you don't mind me mentioning something on that, Scott, because I think that's one yeah. of the forgotten elements. You said celebrate. The act of celebration is actually quite forgotten. Truly being able to like absorb that level of gratitude for the smallest step you take uh, is very important. Just the way it processes in your mind and stores that experience. When it comes to learning, if you learn through play, you learn like something like 70% faster. But if you celebrate too, it stores much quicker, much more complete, and usually in a more holistic way. That's like something if we go back to, we were talking about traumatic events, like acute traumatic events. If you could find a way to celebrate from those moments, and I know that can be difficult. Like when we were overseas, there was a guy, both legs blown off, arm blown off. I won't get into the full story, but in that moment, it's probably a little bit harder to find reasons to celebrate, but he has. His journey is not going to be one of ease, but he's a beacon now, right? He's, he's found a way all that risk he took, he brought back a reward and he's bringing it into the world. It's usually a message of like, <laughs> let's not be doing war and stuff anymore. But anyways, it, it is a very important factor that is lost. It's lost, especially in adults, like to really celebrate. Perhaps it's one of the, the benefits of stories that draw our interest. They're very dramatic. There's an incredibly powerful moment we can recognize even in a, a real life situation like you described or in a fictional arena where the the person experiences something very dramatic and that's what spurs them to then enter into the journey and, and transform. But at the same time, maybe that can be a hindrance to people to think that that's the only thing that can spur the journey, that it needs to be something overwhelming, dramatic, it's instantaneous and not this slow grind. You make a choice to enter into the small, slow grind over time and continuity to then get to the same result. The more I've researched post-traumatic growth, post-traumatic stress disorder, the more I experience myself and all that, you've already had that call. You just may not realize it. There was times when you were a little baby and you were hungry and it was so overwhelming, you cried. Like it brought your system down. Like just think back to when you were a child, there's a lot of moments in time where the energy was overwhelming and it called for that. Because I agree with you, we shouldn't need dramatic events in order to inspire us to greatness. We shouldn't, but that just goes to speak about where the resonance is right now. So if most people tune into what inspires them, when they really learn to tune into it, they'll see that it's actually just holding them in their place at their lower resonance. It's not actually trying to bring them up into a higher love-based reality. It's actually keeping them plateaued. It gives them just enough of a spike to feel like, yeah, that was great. It was worth the popcorn. That's where I usually start with. Where's your attention going? 
is it really trying to bring more love into your world? If it's not trying to bring more love into your world, it's only bringing more fear. If it's bringing more fear, it's just going to perpetuate those moments. And just to bring back to the childhood thing, what's really crazy about it is once you start exploring that, once you start going inwards into the psychosphere, you'll see that that is... Those are the moments you couldn't face in reality. They're the darkest and hardest. They're the most dramatic. You want drama? Start looking there. You know, if that's what it takes, even like the word drama, drama is like the measure, the addiction to discord. So you have reality, which would probably be some cohesive Venn diagram of 8 billion people overlaid. And we'll call that reality. And then there's your ideality or how you view reality as an individual, your kind of subjective experience. And the farther they're apart, the more discord there is. And that tension almost feels like insanity. But being addicted to that discord is drama. That's why we like drama. That's why we like entertainment. It gives us the illusion that that gap doesn't exist, but it does. So again, if the drama is there to teach you a, a really deep allegorical lesson, perhaps, or something like that, it's good that way. I really like the motif of we are our own hero, victim, and villain. And I just think we should choose to be the hero more often. How about the, the thought that people don't know they can feel better until they actually feel better? Where the inspiration and the desire to continue on a path comes from is when you actually experience and feel something. Like You can think your way through it, but until you've felt it and experienced it, it I don't think it really truly moves people. But if you've had a, a life up till this moment of feeling a certain way, like you've mentioned it as your normative baseline, just because it's it's a normative baseline for you doesn't mean it's it's the most healthy baseline that you can have but it is what you know and if you haven't known anything else like you said you're always returning to that and you think okay now i'm back to me again i'm back to what i know i'm back to what's comfortable but until they can experience feeling different then they would have that awakening of oh my god I, this is a completely different feeling than i've ever had before in my life and now then i feel like you're you're then in drawn to trying to get back to that feeling and having that feeling more often the term i would use to get it going i, I really like is relativity of attributes so you don't know what you don't know, right? If you haven't experienced something, as much as you visualize it, as much as you work through it, as much as you drill and practice, you have not experienced that experience. Your nervous system has not sat in that reality. So until you do, you don't have those attributes. So if you can't, if you've never, because some people have actually never really felt love, mm -hmm. like as crazy as that is, like the plane on the full representation of it, very few people have ever felt. For themselves or for other people. For themselves, for other people, for the universe around them. Absolutely. So like, how do you explain that, right? Well, we go back, you go bit by bit. And what I would say is I'm going to tie this together with attention because I think this is important. Right now, everybody's receiving sensory input and your body's filtering it. Some people call it the reticulated activating system. It goes through many filters. Those have biases, many, many biases that are running all the time. Okay. We know this. And then it goes up through your perceptions, your upper limbic, it goes through your emotions and it's filtered. And then eventually you got your upper cerebral, your neocortex. Now, those three layers, I just call them attention, perception, and then sometimes thoughts, sometimes beliefs, your values. It can go by a lot of things that sit up here, but your upper cognitive functions. And they work in a loop. They don't only imprint upwards, they imprint downwards. And what usually happens though, is they create a cycle and people think they're living out their values. They think on that higher level where we have insight that they're living them out. Having insights is a little bit easier, right? We sit, we contemplate and we have like, oh, okay, that was neat. Oh, that was neat. What you're talking about though, is when it breaks through the perceptual layer and you feel it differently for the first time, because 
in constriction, your emotional toolbox is constricted down. So you don't have access to the full uh, love-based emotions, joy, peace, satiation, all the way up to enlightenment, but, but even things like acceptance and neutrality, being able to not have to fearfully jump on a pole. So when that happens though, those are much rarer. If we knew how to educate better, we'd have access to them much quicker. Those start shifts, but that even goes deeper. Once you start having breakthroughs, you can start having what's in the Gene Keys referred to as epiphanies. They're really just shifts on your epigenetics and your impulses. If you live out patterns, which everybody lives out some, if we didn't have some patterns, it would be a mad world. (laughs) It would be crazy. So we need some of these patterns, right? But if you're living them out, they actually shift how your DNA is represented through control elements, through your epigenetics. And those can be a little bit trickier to undo. Not difficult. They're just a little, they can take more time. They can be very acutely activated. Deep levels of stress can activate them quickly or chronic levels. Deep levels of love or, well, I'll just, I don't like using the word chronic love, but a longer set of love can change them. They change the elements, the actual atoms that act on it. And uh, we can do this with just by eating better, breathing better, moving better, all those very Maslowian things. Like these are, unless you're like in a, in a food desert or something, most of these things, if you make better choices, because that's the key, right? It's hard to make better choices when your filter's a little bit clogged up. So that's why you got to start small and you do something small and you fucking high five yourself and you take that reward. The next day, maybe you do something a little bit more because it can be overwhelming if you go too big, too fast. Because the truth is most people's prefrontal cortexes are underutilized, not overutilized. You mentioned epigenetics a few times and you've described it very well. Maybe just to clarify, simplify because there's always been an argument in psychology of, is it nature? Is it nurture? Right. And epigenetics speaks to the fact that it's both, which is what you're touching on. The way it was articulated to me at one point was that think of your genes and your DNA as like a, as a switchboard, that's your nature. And then the nurture is the environment, the experiences. And through these experiences, you're flipping and turning off certain switches and whatever combination that ends up on throughout your life, that's what's going to manifest and show itself in your behaviors and your thoughts. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, I would love to chat about this. So one, I would say human nature is paradoxical and it's never either or. It's almost never either or. It's not nature or nurture. It's, it's both. And it's much more because if we look at DNA, it's actually being nurtured on the other side by magnetic fields, quantum fields, electromagnetic. Like, so it's we, we put these zero points as humans that are almost always wrong. Um, So it's being nurtured from both levels, but it's also expressing outwards. It's amazing how beautiful our DNA, if you will, is manifesting the world around us too, how it is represent, like it's so cool how we've done that. We just got to do it a little bit better. So crash course epigenetics, I am not an epigeneticist, just so people know, but our DNA sits in a ball. It's not long and strung out. It sits in a ball. And the first control elements that kind of, or the first part of epigenetics is when you're stressed, that ball gets collapsed down. And as it collapses down, maybe evolutionary, it has a chance to mutate and create something stronger, but usually it doesn't. It usually starts to manifest things like cancer. It starts to manifest things that are stress disorders, diseases. Soon they'll say that most disease, that's where it actually comes from. Our environment pressuring our DNA, our DNA stops unfolding That's the first thing that stress starts. The next thing is stress and usually done through inadequate air, water, 
food, things like that, and other means because interactions, right? My words, they might be vibrating mechanically towards you, but they become atomic quantum processes in your mind. And those atoms start to form once we go below the neuron, and then they can store as shitty free radicals. So we have to be careful what we listen to. But anyways, those control elements are actual molecules and atoms that sit outside the DNA on it. And like you said, if you look at like a gene, it helps either fire it or not. Usually it's some kind of stress, but it's also the opposite. All these things have their opposites, right? And then what they do is they, if they're on or they're off, they're either going to produce aminos that are necessary in abundance and in a healthier way or the opposite. And once again, we might collapse ourselves down. So what we do is we get into these cyclical patterns that just keep compressing downwards. And that's where we start to get into intergenerational wounding and things like that, where if we just kind of like super wave top, look like natives in Canada, put them on reserves. We give them these situations that start to compress their DNA and then it creates childhood patterning and conditioning. And then it just keeps repeating and repeating. And it's like, it's, it's crushing down. It's crushing down. Even our language, this is where the, the issue with these conversations runs out is the English language is, is a left brain function. It is a non-paradoxical, it's a dualistic tool. So we run out of the ability to actually really depthfully have this conversation. There are other forms that are more abstract forms of communication, but we don't really know how to combine them with the scientific method right now. And as we do that, these things will start to merge. And the consilience between something like psychology and biology, those are building this is like, if anyone ever says something as an absolute, maybe shut that show off <laughs> because every time someone says that something is an absolute, they've always been wrong. Truth is an expanding concept. So don't try to find truth as like a point, right? As, as people are constricted down, swimming, they're sinking, trying to find these points of reality to anchor. Don't look at them like that. It's tricky, right? Because like the human experience is pretty, it's beautiful, but it can be tricky. Yeah, and this is where these adages of words matter. People won't remember what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. That's where the, all these things come from. And, and I always find it interesting to look at definitions of words in other languages that we don't have in English that define complex experiences or feelings. So through investigating and looking into other languages, not having to learn other languages, but seeing how other people express themselves and how they name things, how much it has an impact. I would love if mankind came up with a universal language, not to be the only language, because I think it's really beautiful to see how other cultures spawn uh, because of their language. I, I think it's really beautiful, but we should start actually coordinating this effort. You know what I mean? We're here for a while and not everyone's going to punch the ticket all at the same time here. We're going to be doing this thing for a while. We might as well start thinking a little bit long-term beyond ourselves and something like that, like a, a common neuroscientific where it uses those abstract possibilities like schadenfreude and things like that. And where, yeah, one word creates a whole scene, right? Even to reduce it down to within firefighting, it, it, that's a common problem that's been acknowledged that it's very regional and we don't have a common jargon or vernacular, a way of communicating what something is called or what we see and recognize is called. So from that, you can't have an actual conversation about it until you define and everyone understands the definition of the thing you're trying to discuss. Just for fun, there is a many other forms of communication that we don't use too. In fire, I would imagine you guys have some hand signals, 
things like that. We communicate with like badges. We communicate with all kinds of different things, but it is important to begin to really shift those. Unfortunately, most of our communication is driven by money. Almost everything we do is driven by learning to communicate for money, right? To grab people's attention and whatnot. And as long as that zero sum game is the one that everyone wants to play, we're not going to really evolve it into something deeper. I agree. It would be nice to like on a broader scale, remove a lot of the semantics that we're dealing with right now when it comes to this, because it'll make the new conversation a little bit easier. It'll take away some of the tension, right? Because if like we use, we started off with the word trauma, I say trauma to you, it's going to mean something different than it means to me, like on a whole firing of the brain to someone else. Right. And what that does is unless you have an organized mind, that's almost always going to put someone in a defensive state because actually killing an idea or a thought is difficult. That's the secret of the ego, right? Like burning away a neuronal path is, it almost feels like death in a lot of ways because we're shifting who we are, right? We're, we're, we're changing that. I suppose that's why it doesn't really go that fast. Yeah, I've heard it said, I believe, by Jordan Peters. I'm not sure if he was the one that coined the phrase, but the saying is, you don't have ideas, ideas have you. They go both ways. That's kind of like a Jungian archetype pulled out of the quantosphere thing. I don't think we know enough to know for sure that we don't auto-generate our own ideas. I think they can be both, but he's not wrong in how much it can grip you. That's the issue. That's why when I talk about values, perception, attention, it takes a long time. And not one time sitting down, writing on a piece of paper, this is the five values. It takes a long time to really learn what you value. And until you do that, yeah, whatever sitting down in the subconscious, unconscious is probably gripping you. That's where, though, there's some real beauty. If we do kind of go to the Jungian archetype or the morphogenic field, there is wisdom in the universe that is way beyond our brain that we can start to draw from. This is where language runs out. This is where the conversation has always been tricky, right? If we look at all the algorithms of all time that have tried to tell us any religion, any philosopher that's worth their weight, alchemy, it doesn't matter. They're trying at their essence, how do I draw these truths out? How do I pull them out? Not just from inside myself through adversity and suffering, but also from the, the greater universe. Venturing towards us talking about the documentary, The Dark Night of the Soul, is a poem by the Spanish mystic St. John of the Cross. It narrates the journey of the soul to the mystical union with God, which and you've mentioned that certain words can be saturated with religion or spirituality and maybe can turn people off. But the dark night of the soul became more commonly known as, as a time in someone's life of existential doubt and loneliness. And we've already mentioned, and that's in the realm of addictions, where it's more commonly known as rock bottom. Is that where you drew the title for the documentary from? Have you drawn any inspiration from that poem, that idea? What was it that led to wanting to make the documentary? Going into the underworld and coming out is as old as old as time. It is the story. It is the human experience explained. And at its very worst, and potentially the very worst, because we can have multiple dark times going on, and then sometimes they overlap. Maybe it's that person's absolute rock bottom, the lowest they will ever feel. That's usually what the dark night of the soul is. When you look back on your life, there was this one point, it was the darkest because everybody has dark times. That's part of the human experience. I call it the holy dark. It is just as important as the light. That's the thing people like just, you don't go through and then there's like perpetual joy and you're just like smiling all the time, like a moron. Like that's not how it works. Like you can be, your attitude governs how you feel 
in these dark times. You cannot be crippled down. Like that's truly the land of the warrior. It's a gift and it's cultivated. Okay. I, I know that. And I know that because I've been there and I've been there a lot. I don't usually go into the depths of my suffering because I call that a little bit of trauma porn. I don't want to reinforce that. So yes, The Dark Knight of Soul, you said it really well. It's a great poem and it sums that up in a beautiful way in, in, a, in, in his own language of how that darkness does unite you with God. Because what's happening is on the dark side, when we're in the low states, our physical body is literally dying and it's literally moving us back towards undifferentiated consciousness or God. And so what happens is at its darkest, its worst, I believe one of the things that people have is a near-death experience, big DMT release. That experience itself is godlike, but I also believe DMT is, is a veil remover between our illusion of being separate from the universe. And I think that's why it brings people close to God. You can also have that on the bliss side, on the love side, where your ego dies and your physical body is not so much dying and you return closer. You are never returned to perfection until you fully die, but you return closer and you gleam new insights. Instantly, your brain is reformed because it's trying to survive. It's trying to find new patterns, literally pulls hope out of the universe. And often, if we look at prophets, they bring back the greatest wisdom that changes humanity as it goes problem is is we we stick with it instead of evolving we, we were like no it can be in any religion or any faith i won't i won't like point any particular one out and then we try to stay there and we hold on to it and that's what happens as our consciousness wants to fluoresce as it wants to expand we hold it in place we were wrestling with all kinds of things right because in the dock we want to really introduce post-traumatic growth but at its essence the dock is about how it's time for us all to face our dark night but we want to do it in a way where we're we're doing it together because although it's an individual journey in a lot of ways, if we watch most of the good movies, take heroes and heroines with you down there and then you separate afterwards. And that's where the real work begins, where you begin to incorporate these truths and you manifest them. And, and it's, I'm not going to downplay it. It's difficult, right? Because down there, you're going to face your deepest dragons. But that is like where the real richness of life is, where you will find the tools to help other people. And that level of service is the most rewarding, whether it's one person, yourself, or your kids, or your family, or your community, or millions or billions. It's not about fanship or followership. It's about really changing that. And so, yeah, it definitely, the dark night of our soul, it was very, we were actually going to call it the dark night of the soul. And then I just was like, you know what? I think as we developed it, we went to our soul. You know, like how it personalizes it and unifies it as our time, our mission, our effort. Yeah. Could you imagine, Scott, if we really consciously and collectively stopped at this moment in time and like change things? Because like we're getting past the point where we can argue that we're not changing our ecosystem for the worst. Getting past the point where we can keep arguing that people are happy and connected because they're not, they're disconnected. And if they don't think they're disconnected, they're even more disconnected. And there's the people who know they are connected, of course. So we're getting past that. And we don't know what the outcome of that is going to be as we're introducing mRNA vaccines, as we're introducing all these things as reactive to our circumstances, not good or bad, just reactive. We are going to potentially perpetuate these things. We're shifting our bodies are amazing antennas to absorb the world around us beyond our five senses. So many feedback loops. And what are we doing with 5G? People are showing that it's actually moving lightning patterns around. 
if we're moving lightning patterns around, like what are we doing to our DNA potentially? This again, isn't like a good evil thing. It's just, we have to be more conscious of what we're doing. And if we stood in this time, we would be giants into history. Instead of everyone trying to fucking build their own statue, let's let's build our statue. Is the trouble though, the, the absolute saturation of information and in order to sit with each, especially at the speed things move now, the time it would take to sit with every single topic and go down the rabbit hole and learn it to the level that you need to learn it, to fully understand it, integrate it, have a opinion about it, have a direction that you want to take from it is almost impossible. Again, people reduce, like you said, collapse down because it's not achievable. And we don't want to, we have a high distrust, especially now more than ever, of leaning on people that have done the deep dives on topics and trusting in them and allowing them to lead us in whatever direction we need to go on each specific topic. Some people who probably listen to some of my podcasts, I think this is a very important one. I love it. It's from Batman. It's Christopher Nolan. And it's you die the hero or you live long enough to become the villain. And that's happening. We see this. You've named some characters already during this podcast that are not evolving their ego. So they're not dying the hero. They're going to die the villain. What they're going to do is they're going to perpetuate things. And my point on that is it is hard to trust people. What was that show that uh, Game of Thrones? Yeah, I'm actually watching it right now for the first time. I'm, I'm really late to the game, but I'm game, no pun intended. But yeah, I'm actually watching it right now. So it's timely for you to mention it. <laughs> Damn, I don't want to give this up, but I'll just say that's it in okay. a way that won't that's give okay. it up. You, everybody's got to John Snow this stuff at a certain point. And that just means do your part and then you retreat. What happens is people's egos get caught up into it and then they they want to sit on this top. It's very hierarchical. It's very chimpanzee monkey level thinking and you have to evolve beyond that. So the daunting task, yes. What's kind of cool though, I mentioned kind of systems as sh- structures as shackles, but they're also systems that are there that could be rejigged. You know? The idea is isn't so much for me and you to perfectly change and do that it's we've got to start the process so that our children can be educated differently if we look at like all the problems in the corporate world all the problems of the world it all boils down to human psychology and it all boils down to an imbalance between fear-based emotions hormones energetics and love base and one is in deficit and the other is not and if we show people how to be more connected to themselves to others how to use these tools because we need to survive we're survival machines but learn how to truly move into a thriving state where we can have open node thinking, bigger, deeper, more productive conversations. This will be a slow burn. Like, remember, we don't have to change it all today. Like we got here over thousands and thousands and thousands of years and we're doing pretty good. We've learned a lot. We got quantum computing coming online. I mean, I don't even know if we should be messing with that, but we're pretty smart. It's just the essence which drives those things needs to change. The survival mindset that usually pushes those has to change because as long as you create from fear, you will only perpetuate fear. That's how it works. And hurt people hurt people. As good as they want to be, I could name a bunch of philanthropists right now, as good as they want to be, they're going to hurt people because they haven't actually changed the essence of what is driving them. There's all kinds of communities that you can start being part of and you start in them and yeah, they feel different. Some people will use different language. Like if you go to a really spiritual community, they'll use a whole new set of language, you know, than a really scientific mathematical group. But what you do 
is you start exposing your nervous system to these outside of your comfort zones and you get used to it. You start moving into them a little bit more at ease. It is more challenging when you're working nine to five and you got the kids and you got to get the groceries and the car's broken down and all these things that we thought we needed and we got to and we're like, oh no, I didn't expect this. But yeah, we, we start breaking the cycle. That's what we do. We're a collective and we have collective cycles that we should break. So let's overlay now this with the special forces experience, right? We're very much seeing this war between grit and vulnerability play out in our culture. How do you see the balance of the two and the ability for people to tap into meet the situations they face with the proper ratio of them? So it doesn't always have to be 100% grit or 100% vulnerability as this being the ability that we should all be striving towards. I'll just rephrase it. It's always yes and or both, right? So grit and vulnerability are both necessary. What people, I think, especially men don't realize about vulnerability is it actually takes great grit. Yes. And great grit actually takes great vulnerability because you have to put yourself in the situation to be gritty. Where I think it gets confusing is when people think they have to force their way through something. So forcing your way through something is moving without full awareness. And that's the issue. If we go back to like the brain, the perception, the values, lots of times we'll find ourselves in our 30s and we're pressing against, and you know it, everybody knows this feeling. I call it like swimming against the molasses. It doesn't matter what it is. Life takes effort, but there's this feeling you get where it's like, this does not feel like the right way. And you feel it and you, it's usually almost like a chronic feeling and you do it. And then you're like, oh damn, you know, I'm starting to put on a little extra weight. Oh man, I'm fighting with the misses more because you're forcing an angle that isn't going to work. So I say persistence without insight is pointless. Sometimes you got to be the willow and sometimes you got to be the oak. It takes wisdom to know which one is which, right? Both those trees are very wise. Uh, it takes both because if you stay too stern, you may not learn the lesson that's there. It will erode you because, yeah, there is those two systems at play right now. They're not those two, those two mentalities, right? And to flow between both can be tricky. But unless you do a little bit of both, you'll, you'll never really learn it. That's what I was talking about with vulnerability and going back into your shadow patterns is if people really want to learn grit, that's, that's where you go. And right now we see it. We know the characters that are out there that are just remaining gritty and this way and then not so. And it's important to have both because if we look at it from the brain's perspective, if we don't have some kind of grit or discipline moving from A to B, our prefrontal starts to not work so good. But if we don't add in flexibility, we start to shut down our emotional tool banks and things like that. So is there like a perfect formula? Yeah. You know, there's things you can move towards, but the perfect formula is, is your own. It's your individuality. That's why I say everybody, if there's one thing you do through this kick at the can is truly become yourself because not just on an atomic level or a cellular level or even a life experience level, each one of us is 100% unique. As much as personality profiles want to try to make us similar, we are all actually unique and we will never potentially, I don't think we could ever have the same person, right? So the best you can do is be yourself. And in that, you'll start to discover those ratios. You'll start to learn to trust your body, mind and soul much deeper. And the more you do that, the more you're going to feel these things, the more you're going to have to like, okay, where does my grit lie? Where does my vulnerability lie? When do I use one? When do I use the other? And then what'll happen is uh, usually you start to have those conversations with other people 
instead of just having beers in the garage or something, oh, hey, you know this, or hey, you know this, or you start to evolve the conversation with the missus or the mister. And these little things, these little embers turn into sparks and those sparks start fires and they start to grow and it. It's something. It's also, like I said, man, it's only for the brave. If you're, it's, it's actually literally the step towards it is being courageous. The, the root of courage is living from your heart, being who you are. That's the Latin-ish root. That's what it means. It, it means to enact these things courageously. You obviously had an awareness and understanding of most of this in order to want to venture into creating the special forces experience and the trials to try and bring this mind shift for people to reality. And then obviously in making the documentary as well. But in, in doing so, even though you had a vision and idea and you're progressing through it, what has surprised you through your experience of it, through watching other people experience it, what has surprised you and what have you taken away? What have you learned and how have both of these experiences helped you grow and shift? I've learned a lot. I continue to learn a lot. I'm so thankful. The special force experience, the process, I'm so thankful for the men that come into that sphere. Like I said, everybody's got so much wisdom with them. It doesn't matter who it is, right? There's so much wisdom. Just just to hold your cellular structure together takes great wisdom, let alone what you've seen and done. And so I, I get to have that come back. As far as surprises, there's been a ton. As far as lessons, there's been a ton. One, in essence, we use stress for change. And most of the problems people have is stress. So a lot of people don't really love the idea of or support the idea of stressing to reduce stress. But it's been amazing because the character that I've found the strongest and hardest to beat is the ego. And when I say the ego, I just mean the patterns in ourselves that play out that we we don't really recognize as non-thriving. They don't really bring us into a thriving state, but we think they do. It is amazing how resilient that is. I'm surprised all the time at how strong it can be, how strong it can be for good and how to usually what would be agreed upon as detriment to the person, how quickly people will will start, it'll start to subconsciously feel it and they'll move away from it. It's not time. It's not this. It's like, and sometimes those are justified, you know, like, okay, I need four more months in order to be in a position to actually change. I need a year, you know, like sometimes proper pivots, especially when you start bringing in the world of money and those survival-based mechanisms, you, you need time to pivot, right? Because they're your full expression and it don't usually perfectly overlap. Hopefully they have some. I think that's why the world of fire is a really good one. There's usually some really nice overlap, but most of the time they're so far apart for people. Like this world is making money is just pure survival and thriving is like something completely different because most people are living paycheck to paycheck. And so one doesn't augment the other, but it is amazing how strong it is, how much it pushes away. And then when it does though, the beauty that just like comes out of that as soon as the constriction releases it's amazing what can dawn for a person it's amazing to see and then it's amazing to see how fast it just like floods outwards into their world telling uh, their children something simple like i love you is going to change the world how something like actually leaving a relationship is going to change the world you realize all these non-serving things see the reason it gets so difficult is because usually you got to give something up on the other side. Most of the time, it's not a gain. The gain is like, what is that? Ad addition through subtraction, where you simplify in some term and you remove from your environment. That can be very difficult. 
it's amazing to see human resilience. I, I, I'm, I'm always mind blown by. It. I love it. I, I've, it's been a joy. I'm kind of saddened that this will be the last one, but we're evolving it. We're evolving it to bring in men and women. We're evolving it because we've learned so much about how to alter states of consciousness, how to prepare, deal with an event, and then afterwards, how to bring that together in linear, nonlinear ways, in better ways. So uh, it's been amazing. It was crazy because I, I just thought, hey, you know what? From a tier one unit, we have all these tools and methods that really condition people into this, this pattern. I wonder if we can use it to decondition, but also help in a way where we don't influence as much as possible. Because I would never tell anyone ever, this is the way you should be. I don't believe in that. Only I think the individual really should know. That doesn't mean we shouldn't trust wisdom. Walk us through, we could obviously, people can obviously watch the trailer for the film. We have a bit more time than the two minute or three minute trailer will allow. So maybe expand a bit more here on what people can expect from watching the documentary. I would love it if people went to uh, posttraumaticgrowth.film. We are in the final phases. We're running a Kickstarter near the end of filming it to just get our graphics. I've produced it and I put a lot into it, but the coffers are running low and we, we really do need help. And it's, it's a wee thing. So if people head over there, they can sign up for the campaign, uh, not the campaign, to, to see the short. We're running a, a short version. It's uh, 35 minutes. It's really, really good. I'm not just saying that. It, it actually, we just ran our first test screening yesterday with a group of people, and it was amazing to hear uh, how it resonated. It, it was really beautiful. So The Dark Knight of Our Soul, in essence, is an introduction to post-traumatic growth, some of its modalities, how people have experienced what it is they experience, because when we have deep revelation or insight, it can be tricky to describe what that is through imagery and sound. We take the viewer on this gentle roll through trauma and we bring them in intensity and we bring them out. And then we slowly start to show how our environment and our our cognitive traits, our senses play together to form our behavior and how that behavior starts to form our environment and how that all plays together. And then slowly unfolding to these concepts of how disconnected we are. And then at the root of it is when we really learn why we suffer, the magic that that is. It's a lot for a film. It's also, I think we really managed to tailor it together and keep the essence of it there. The part of the human experience that we uh, we long for more of and we also long for less of it. And it's not until we start doing it together that those will, I don't really love using the word balance, but start to at least reshift into a new organizational framework. Perhaps this is a step towards that, or maybe this is the, this is the balance or that people are going to experience through entering into the film, a bright day of the soul. Would that be a counter to this, the yin to the yang, that the thing that they can also experience? The next one we're going to do is called the dawn of the spirit. And it's exactly that. So right now as a species, we know a lot about how to live in fear. We know a lot about how to survive. We know a lot how to fight. We know how to build systems out of that place. We actually don't really know how to live from that other paradigm more. We, we really don't. Not as a collective and not fully. So that is the next where we're going to explore that. It's not necessarily what we think should do, but it's like, okay, what are these concepts? What does happen? Why can we have deeper insight here? You know, all these kinds of uh, things. So it's so interesting that you, you you picked up on that that juxtaposition to bring it whole. We need fear-based tools. Like the universe isn't done with us. 
I don't plan on giving up anytime soon. So, you know, we got to keep these tools that keep us, they can help us survive, but we need to just figure out that, as you said, I, I would probably call it the, the yin to the yang. I, I would say that right now we are in a much more masculine energetic state, not just from the left brain, but also the provide, uh, provide, protect kind of thing. And we're, we're starting to bring in this, this more of the yin, which doesn't mean just from women, more right brain. It's, it's a different, more holistic, abstract way of thinking. I don't necessarily think that it's more love per se, but I think it'll help get us there much more. It's so interesting. You mentioned that. And the breaking out of the dualistic thinking, the idea that say the dark night of the soul or these dark suffering, dramatic, pivotal moments are that suffering and then the bright day of the soul or the juxtaposition of that is then the absence of suffering. Maybe we can just speak to that. Like I think that would be the main goal for people to understand that in a thriving state is not the absence of suffering, but it's the ability to to manage and cope with it in a better way. Exactly. So if we had much more time to like move this from a two dimensional, three dimensional graph into some kind of like awesome (laughs) four or five D thing, it would be exactly that. Because here's the secret people, bliss burns too. We can learn deeply from love and we can learn deeply from fear. It does not mean that we won't be challenged. It's about navigating with your attitude through those moments. That's, that's what I was talking about. Like we can be in a dark night and you can do it like the Kung Fu master and roll with the punches and you're smiling. You're not going to take my smile away, but don't fool yourself thinking that on the other side of this is a perpetual smile because it's not, but we can learn. It's another toolbox to learn from that to say though, as we do learn to navigate that, because it's that navigation, right? We calibrate our compass, we load our quiver with the right arrows, and we take the right heroes with us and things like that. We do get to experience things like enlightenment and love and feel like we're thriving more and more and more because our capacity to sit with the world grows. So we don't feel pulled down as much. You can be limited on both ends because in what maybe you finally experience thriving that could be limited by while well, you're waiting for the shoe to drop again. You're not fully embracing and celebrating and, and living in the moment because you're just waiting. You know, it's going to eventually get dark again. Again, that dualistic swing. Exactly. And I would also argue that it's not healthy on a metabolic, a physiological stance to keep your nervous system just parasympathetic. We'll call it like, I, I know we're overlapping a lot of topics here and kind of like smushing them. It's complex. <laughs> That's what it is, man. It's a human experience, right? If we just stay parasympathetic, it's it's a recipe for disaster too. And that's that's the thing. Understanding the difference between anxiety and excitement is tricky. We're not really actually showing how to feel the two properly, I think. So we often confuse excitement for anxiety and anxiety for excitement. And most people just feel fucking anxiety. And if we learn to understand that, yes, sometimes anxiety is a cautionary tale, maybe be careful going down that road. Usually, almost always, it's the road you should go because you're going to learn something. We have 8 billion people and we're living longer and more and more. So obviously we're doing some stuff. Most of the time, we're not stepping off the cliff or into the real danger. Most of the time, we're just going to step into our new horizons yeah, to put it in a very practical sense, I had someone mention the other day that they were very nervous during or at the beginning or the entering into an interview. And, and the way I framed it was, well, you're incredibly nervous or anxious about it because you care. 
like it me this means something to you it's important to you it's somewhere where you want to go so that's why that anxiety comes up but it's actually excitement it's actually hope it's actually looking forward to something Stephen Kotler did a good job with that, trying to turn it into excitement. Like just that, that goes back to, you mentioned kind of language tech, right? The words you use around it will create a map of your reality. So be careful which ones you use, right? I'm nervous. Oh my God, my whole life's going to just, well, yeah, but maybe your whole life is going to open up in that moment. I don't know. I'm much more like a die living kind of person than a mentality. So maybe I might be a little bit cavalier, but I can attest to every time I've ever taking that plunge out of my comfort zone, it has always led to something better. I love that you just used the phrase die living. And you've mentioned ego death a few times as well, which is part of that. To frame it differently, is it a mentality that you have to be willing? Because true change, you're gonna ch you could change so dramatically that you don't recognize who you are anymore. You were something before and now you are something new. I experienced this going into ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is that things were so dark you can have this thought of like, I don't care if this experience kills me. It's not that you want to die. You actually want to live, but you don't, you want change so badly that you don't care if this, if the experience kills you. And then in that there's this peace, there's this release, there's this vulnerability, there's this openness and diving into and allowing things to come through you, change you, and then come out the other side, a different person. And is that one of the hard, I think it's one of the hardest things for people to do is to truly change. You change. A lot of people I think talk about change, but they want to stay who they are yet change. It's a, it's, it's such a paradox. Yeah. I kind of like using the two words PTG break free or break free with PTG. Cause it's like, you want to delaminate from this part of yourself. You recognize that it's non-serving, but it's so rooted in your hippocampus it's so rooted in the fibers of your being it's rooted in your dna that it it literally is a death and we are programmed to avoid death right i think the way the construct of our mind works we avoid physical death and then one day we learn to avoid psychological death it just programmed like that so it feels very much like death but that is the land of the fucking hero or the heroine that is what you just said i agree I've now experienced that a few times in my life. So I don't know if it ever stops. And I don't know if there's ever like the big one because every time it happens, it feels like the big one. But now I'm at a point where I'm balancing love and play and acceptance of these things so that if it does have to happen again, I'll be there. But this is part of the cycle we need to break, right? Instead of being in your thirties or forties and experiencing it and like being like, oh my God, everything's got to go. And like midlife crisis feeling and like full cellular regeneration, if we do it properly and we show children how to actually evolve with these things, it's not going to be so catastrophic. They'll learn to do these things in a much more gentle and conscientious and consciousness way. So it won't feel like, oh no, you know, like everything's got to go fire sale here. But I do, I do that actual surrender. That That's the highest level of surrender to my, it's like, you're willing to step back beyond all your levels of conscious awareness and you're allowing it to just evaporate into space and time. And yes, I prefer plant medicines, but anything that is going to alter your state of consciousness has the potential to do this. It doesn't have to be necessarily as dramatic as, I don't want to use the word dramatic, because a lot of people don't like taking anything, you know, which I, I think has its place as a mentality, but also plant medicines. Medicines have a place, like you could attest to it. I What you just told me about ketamine, all my ketamine experience was recreational and not 
uh, at a, at a, in a controlled, healthy yeah. environment. Yeah, which I, I, I do agree with. I've, I've spoken to people about uh, ketamine. But anything that alters your state of consciousness, this could be travel. This could be removing unhealthy relationships. This could be changing how you eat. And you, you do small bits too. It doesn't always have to be like zero to 90. Like I know some people who go and do Bufo, which is uh, scraped off a toad and it's a 5-MEO. And as far as I know, it is the rocket ship. And people come out of it oftentimes and they have to like light the whole castle on fire because they really, like you see all the stuff and it's like, oh no, what have I done? Well, we don't have to go zero to a hundred. We start meditate, learn a stream of conscious journal. Like I said, put yourself in a different activity. Just change some of your patterns. Take a different road to work. Some patterns work. You know it's got and like the people listen, they know the patterns that they're like, oh my God, I'm doing this again. Oh my God, I'm doing this again. You know them. So just start slower to shift them. And then one thing leads to another. And Bill Gates says people overestimate what they can do in a year and they underestimate what they can do in 10 years. I don't like to go up against intellectual giants, but people have no fucking idea what they can do in a year. And we can't even imagine what we can do in 10 years. It's amazing to see what you can shift in a week. In a week. Right. Well, think about it. The act of trauma, one acute incident could happen in one hour and it changes your life forever. Well, like you said, start writing it out if you have to. There's all kinds of tools. I mean, this is the day and age where we are at this point right now. Informationally, like you said, we got it. Time to hang up the phone and do the work. Again, to put it in a practical sense, I experienced an injury in the fall, surgery, and it was amazing to see how quickly things changed physically negatively within a very short period of time taking care of your body for 30 years and in in a matter of a month or two how your body just goes oh we don't need to use all these muscles anymore and everything just shrinks away and then that has that is it's crazy like it's like base jumping and then you have this you know it's psychologically hard place to think oh like the the and having to start over and over and over so many times and this is what we're speaking about the more times you do that the more you realize you will get through it but it's still daunting when you look at it and think oh i gotta do this again but then on the reverse how quickly a recovery can occur and how quickly your body can adapt and come back over the same period of time i just think people need to understand how quickly things can shift negatively, but also you can do a lot in a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month to shift yourself back to where you need to be. A small example that surprised me last year, I went to uh, Europe and the, the airline misplaced my luggage and I was in Estonia and I had to go shopping because they were like, well, you're not getting your luggage. And let's just say I don't wear, I didn't wear Euro style men's clothes. So there I am tight, you know, putting on, like, are you sure? Like, this is, this is, this is good for, this is comfortable. Like, but it was amazing how just changing my wardrobe changed things about myself. Little things like that, that really like all kinds of these little cool adventures you can take that, uh, that do that. An injury can be very dramatic, especially at a certain point in your life. You can be the agent of change at any time. It doesn't have to be slap in a face from the universe. Just to touch back again, like a plant medicine, I think it's important for people to realize in our discussion with that is that the plant medicine experience, or even if it's chemical, like it's a DMT or it's a ketamine, it's not doing the thing for you. You don't get the, the easy way out of, well, I take this thing and that's the pill, that's a shortcut, and then I'll just have the shift and it'll occur. It's a an avenue, it's a medium 
it's a, a journey through that and, and helps you with the shift, but it doesn't do the shift for you. To go full circle, that's that's one of the reasons people avoid this work because we're integrated, especially in a lot of the Western world, into a society that wants not that. It wants, you know, the helicopter era, the 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 more what they think is gentle, but I think we we need to reframe that because you're actually doing a great disservice to those people in the long run for a sense of thriving. Only the worst parents would be like, I don't want my kids to be happy or feel joy. Only the worst. Most parents want their kids to experience joy in their life. So they do these things thinking they will. It's a bit of an illusion. And I'm not saying safety isn't important. It's just in the long run, then we start like these avoidances and you mentioned plant medicine, like it's so sweet right now. It, it would be awesome in Canada if they could wise up to it now that marijuana is legal. And that's why we started Citizen Green because all these soldiers are being given cannabis and with no real direction on it. People know it works. It's not the doc's fault. It's nothing like that. So we're going to build up the research. We're going to bring the community together and we're going to use this very, very powerful tool. I wish when I was younger, someone showed me how to properly use cannabis. Not only would it have helped me enjoy those higher states of consciousness through my teenage years, which can be pretty teenage but I would have gleaned so much more insight that I wouldn't have had to mine out as an adult. We barely teach people how to properly use alcohol <laughs> or even say Advil or Tylenol or any kind of pain medication or cold medication. We have the stuff, we use it, but there's not a lot of education surrounding that. So then to think that we're going to educate people on which we can. And like you said, the, these initiatives need to take place that so we do need to properly educate each other on cannabis, on psilocybin, and even on the chemical end of things, you know, clinically, now we're seeing great benefits with MDMA, with ketamine. So there's all these other avenues. And like you said, each person's an individual, they're very unique. So their own journey is going to be the more awareness that they can glean about themselves and about what, what options and avenues are out there, the better they're going to be able to, which is what I think you're like overall, what you're really, what I take up that you're trying to do is to help people learn, learn how to evolve, not telling people what they should evolve into, but really teaching people how to evolve gradually over time. The raft, not the shore. Mm -hmm. It's all unfolding bit by bit. <laughs> is there anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? No, that was great. I really appreciate this conversation. Awesome. How can people get a hold of you? Tell them where to find the SFE, tell them where to find the short for the dock, like lay it all out for people to investigate and even maybe touch on Citizen Green and what's coming. Well, as far as Citizen Green goes, it's a beautiful venture between a blockchain research company, GCAC, Global Compliance, Santa, a medical cannabis grower, top notch in their industry. Indirectly, Veterans Affairs, and then the SFE, my group. And what we're going to do is bring this all together. We're going to start building data, bringing people into the community and giving them courseware and tools to navigate specifically cannabis usage. Like you said, your shampoo bottle comes with more directions than <laughs> uh, a thing of weed. I'm not supposed to call it weed, medical cannabis. We're super excited about this. I can't wait for it to launch so that these veterans, not all, it doesn't necessarily have to be anti-PTSD or stress, but it's also about identity and transition shifts, finding deeper levels of purpose as because that's one of the things right after first responder communities or service, any community really is finding what's next. So these are all important tools. If people want to check us out, we're at the specialforceexperience.com. You can head down the rabbit hole there. What would I really invite you to check out is posttraumaticgrowth.film. You can see our trailer there and then follow us into the Kickstarter and please do spread the message. It's that information. Like you said, we want to bring these tools. We really genuinely want to bring these tools to people. 
and Instagram, Facebook, uh, they can find SFE on there and you specifically. Yeah. So special forces experience is uh, on, on Instagram and then Jeff Depotti underscore to head to mine. And uh, both of those will lead them down the rabbit holes as well. This has been great, man. I really, speaking of being grateful, I'm, I'm deeply grateful for the time today to talk to you. Uh, the gratitude to you too, my friend. <laughs>